All right. Well, I'm very sad to say that this is going to be the last Sunday for our elementary kids to be with us in worship this summer. And I'm going to invite you guys, elementary age kids, to come and join me one last time. I don't know about you guys, but I love worship with our elementary kids in the room. I thank you. I'm glad you guys are going to join me in that. <laughs> we have loved having you guys here with us this, this summer, and I know school's getting ready to start again. You guys are so pumped about that, I'm sure. Not even a smile about school. All right. But we're going to have one last sermon in the sack. It'll be a little different today. And you guys are going to be heading back to uh, ministry across the way next week at 1030. Parents, don't forget that. You're, feel free to bring them in here if you want to, but uh, we, uh, you guys will be starting back again there next week. And I wanted to share with you guys something. First, I want to say thank you uh, to you guys for leading us out in worship every, every week this, this summer. You guys have shared with us some awesome songs. My favorite was the one you guys did last week, I Am Free. Man, some of you guys were really free, and we could use some more of what you guys were bringing in that song. But um, I want to share with you something that, that Jesus was teaching his disciples. It's in Mark chapter 9, and hopefully some of you guys have been reading through the Gospel of Mark this summer with your parents. And uh, I know Eliza's been reading it for us every night, and we... We've enjoyed that. I want to continue, encourage you to continue through uh, the rest of that book. You're almost to the end. But this is what it says about Jesus uh, and his disciples in Mark chapter 9. You guys listen to this. It says, And when they came to Capernaum, that was a place Jesus went to pretty often, he says he was in the house, and he asked his disciples, What were you discussing on the way? In other words, what were you guys talking about on our way here? But they kept silent. For on the way they had been arguing with one another, about who was the greatest. How many of you guys have ever gotten into an argument with your brother or sister while you're in the car? Ah, there we go. We're getting it. All right. So the disciples weren't much different than us. They were arguing on the way about who among them was the greatest. Okay? And he sat down and he called the twelve, all the disciples together, and he said to them, here was Jesus teaching, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And then listen to what he did. And then Jesus took a child, and he put them in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And boys and girls, I want to I just ask you to use your God-given imaginations for a minute. And imagine... If you had been that little child, Jesus is in the midst of teaching. Uh, he's trying to share something with his disciples. And he takes this little boy or this little girl, brings him up next to himself and says, here's the example of what you need to be like. And some of you guys have, have demonstrated that for us so wonderfully this summer in the way that you've worshipped, in the way that you've listened, in the way that you've taken the time to, to fill out these things. I know most of you are just wanting the candy that comes at the end, but you still, you were faithful. And I want to thank you for that. Thank you for worshiping with us and, and for being for us an example, and just like Jesus that day when he said, okay, see this little kid? This, this is what I want you adults to be like. And adults in the room, I'm going to say the same to you. We need to learn a lesson from our sons and daughters about freedom and worship, 
we need to learn a lesson from our sons and daughters uh, about uh, things don't have to be nearly as complicated as we make them out to be. Uh, we need to learn a lesson that a lot of times it's a whole lot better to listen than to speak. And uh, So thank you, boys and girls, for that. And what I want to do, I know this isn't much, but I, I just got to thinking about I've had this old ratty bag all summer long. And uh, we've had found all kinds of weird stuff in here. And you all have walked away with some amazing prizes. I know that you're just totally overwhelmed by the prizes you've gotten. But I want to send you away today, each one of you, with a piece of this, this bag. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to take this and I want you to put it in your pocket. I know, you're going, man, he's giving us a piece of a ratty old bag today. This is the worst prize we've gotten all week, all summer. But as you take this home, when you pull this out, when you get home, put it in your pocket. If you don't have pockets, stick it somewhere. And when you pull this out, I want you to remember what Jesus said about what it means to be really great. This is not a great prize, but imagine in your mind being that little boy or that little girl that Jesus called up in front of all his disciples and said, this is what it looks to be like to be really great. This little kid may not look like much to you guys, but he is an example of what it means to be one of my followers. And if anyone among you wants to be great, first you've got to become like this little kid. And so we want to say as a church, thanks to you guys for worshiping with us this summer. I want to pray over you guys that you continue to grow in Christ. And remember, regardless of what else is going on in your life or in your home, there is one person that you are extremely important to. And his name is Jesus. So if you bow your heads with me, I want to, I want to pray for you guys and we'll let you go back to your seats. Father, we thank you. We thank you for Jesus' teaching. And how he pulled up that little boy or that little girl and used him as an example of what real God-honoring faith looks like. That we don't have to run after the greatest positions. We don't have to try to be the best or to make our voice heard or to make a name for ourselves. The best place we can possibly be is right where that little boy or little girl was, right next to Jesus. And we thank you for these boys and girls that have been an example to us this summer who have worshipped out of the overflow of their hearts, who have demonstrated for us what it looks like to worship you without hindrance, to worship you in spirit and in truth. And Father, I pray you would bless them as they're getting ready to start back to school. I pray that these boys and girls would be a light in their schools. That they would know so clearly that they don't have to wait until they get old like their pastor to be used by you. That you want to use them powerfully day in and day out to share your love with others, to serve others, to demonstrate true kingdom greatness. And I pray this over them in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 10. We're going to talk about the servant Savior today. This is really, though it may not look that way, this is really the climax of the book of Mark. We've been walking through this book uh, since the 1st of June. 
uh, really the end of May, I guess we started uh, into the book of Mark, and we're now here at chapter 10, and, and all along the way, there's been this question that's just come up time and time again, and the question has been, who is this Jesus? We saw him in chapter 1, and he seems to kind of come out of nowhere and comes to be baptized by John in the Jordan River. And we hear this voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And then immediately from there, he goes into the wilderness to be, to be tempted by the devil. And all kinds of things go on there that are described in, in the other gospels, but Mark just kind of keeps it real simple. And then immediately from there, he's on to, he begins his teaching ministry and begins his healing ministry and begins doing things that nobody's ever done before. He speaks as one with real authority, not derived authority as if he's speaking based on somebody else's authority, but he is speaking as if the, res, the authority resides in him. He's teaching things nobody's ever heard before. He's taking the Old Testament scriptures and bringing new light to them and the people are astounded who is this Jesus he takes his his innermost core Peter James and John into a, the home of a guy named Jairus whose daughter had just died that afternoon and he raises her from the dead and then he tells them not to tell anybody who is this Jesus they're out on the mountainside, and he's teaching them late into the afternoon, and the disciples say, okay, it's time to send everybody home. It's getting late. There's no food here. We need to send everybody home. And Jesus says to them, okay, you guys, you guys feed them. And then he takes a little boy's lunch and distributes it among 5,000 men plus the women and children. Ten to 20,000 people receive that food in our filled with 12 baskets left over, one for each of those disciples who didn't believe he could do it. Who is this Jesus? He puts them in the boat, sends them out, and he goes out to them walking on the water, and they are terrified, and their question is, who is this Jesus that even the wind and the waves obey him? All throughout this book we've been hearing both explicitly and implicitly this question that Mark asks, which is, who is this Jesus? But not only that, the follow-up question of who is this Jesus is the question, and what does he require of me? And that's what we're going to find today as we talk about the servant Savior here in Mark chapter 10. I'm going to give you the end from the beginning this morning. Mark 10.45 is the key verse of the Gospel of Mark. This is what he has been aiming toward all throughout this book. And then from here to the end, he describes the outgrowth of this truth when he says, For even the Son of Man, Jesus' favorite designation of himself was Son of Man. Jesus is speaking here and says, Even the Son of Man, even I, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so we're going to look at that today. Mark chapter 10. If you're able to stand with me in honor of God's word, would you do so at this time as we read Mark 10, 35 through 45. Just a little context here. Jesus has just finished his third teaching session with the disciples about what's getting ready to happen when they go to Jerusalem. That he's getting ready to give his life for the sins of the people and be raised from the dead three days later. He's taught it three times, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10. And he's just taught the third one of these sessions about his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And they still don't get it as evidenced by their response 
starting in verse 35. This is the word of the Lord. And it says, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him, and they said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Parents, you ever had that moment? Little boy, little girl comes up. Mommy, I want you to do something for me. Be very careful how you respond. Jesus is very wise here. What he says. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? Playing along a little bit. Verse 37, and they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? We'll come back to that in a moment. They said to him, we are able. Jesus said to them, the cup I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Verse 41, and when the ten heard it, the rest of the disciples, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called to them and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And you can be seated. Father, I pray that you would cause wrestling within us today over the question of the Gospel of Mark. Who is this Jesus? Who is this one? that gives sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, who who causes the mute to speak? Who is this one that raises the dead and walks on water and feeds multitudes with a little boy's lunch? Who is this one who teaches with authority and yet humbles himself in the most immense of ways. Who is this Jesus and what does He require of us? Lord, I pray that these questions would grip us and that we would submit ourselves to this servant Savior we see depicted here, Lord. We'd submit ourselves to You. We ask these things in Jesus' strong name. Amen. So Jesus has just finished teaching them for the third time about what's getting ready to happen. They're already on their way to Jerusalem where he is going to accomplish the fulfillment of all that he came into the world to do. He came into the world not just to feed multitudes with little boys' lunches. He came for a more specific purpose that's getting ready to be fulfilled. And he wanted his disciples to be prepared. And so he teaches them at chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, preparing them. And they just didn't get it. They just could not understand 
how this one that Peter had proclaimed as the Messiah, as the Christ, as the Son of the living God, they could not understand why the path he was taking was leading not immediately to a crown, but rather to a cross. They just couldn't understand it. I believe in their minds they rejected it. And so two of the inner circle, James and John, sons of Zebedee, these brothers, they come to Jesus with this selfish request. Look at verses 35 through 40. Their selfish request was this. He's just gotten done teaching them about what he's getting ready to do in Jerusalem. And they said, okay, teacher, here's, we want to ask you something. We have a request of you. In fact, you, you look at the book of Matthew, and Matthew records that they actually got their mama to do the asking. That's what Matthew says, that their mother, Salome, was the one that actually came and made the request, but the request was coming from her sons. It's as if they knew that their request was a little bit shameful. We really shouldn't be asking this. It's like when one of my children comes to ask me on behalf of the others. You've had that moment, right, parents? And you know, I don't really think that this is coming from this one. I think the other one is too ashamed to ask, so they're going to send the messenger. So the messenger here was Mama. These two boys wanted to ask of Jesus that they might sit in the prized positions. And so they sent Mama. They were taking claim of a promise that Jesus had already made. Matthew chapter 19 records something that Luke doesn't record. Jesus was teaching the disciples about the day when which he was going to take up his rightful place on the throne. And he said to them, And in that day you twelve disciples will sit on 12 thrones, and you will judge the 12 tribes of Israel. And so in the, in the back of their minds was that promise that Jesus had made. They wanted to avoid all that went on with the cross and suffering and all that. Let's just go straight to the crown. Let's go straight to the place of greatness. We want to avoid all of this trouble and get right to the good stuff. And so they were remembering this promise, and they asked that they might sit in the foremost place in his kingdom. But keep in mind once more, Jesus had just finished teaching about his death. He had just finished it. They're on the road to Jerusalem. There's just one more stop before they enter into the gates at Jerusalem. They're going to stop in Jericho. He's going to heal some blind men, and then they're going to move on into Jerusalem. He's going to enter into the city gates at Jerusalem to shouts of Hosanna, to shouts of praise God. Blessed be the name of the one who comes, the one who comes in the name of the Lord. They're going to, they're going to enter, he's going to enter into this great reception of praise. And one week later, the same crowd that shouted Hosanna is going to be shouting, crucify him. This is the greatest fall from glory you have ever seen in the history of mankind. How a man could go from being the pride of the people, the joy of the people, the one they're lifting up with shouts of Hosanna, praise be to God for this one who comes riding on the donkey, to a week later, they are calling for his death. But it was all according to the plan of God. And Jesus had just finished teaching about his death. He had just finished teaching them and then we come to the question of these two idiots. But lest I be too harsh, understand I don't think it's much different than the same question that many of us are asking. Because what they were really asking is, how do I make a name for myself? 
How do I get a leg up on the competition? How do I get to the place where people know who I am? We, we are living in a culture that is obsessed with popularity and fame. If I can just get my 15 seconds of fame and stretch it into 15 minutes and maybe even 15 years, if I can get, if people know who I am, if I'm the one that, that everybody recognizes, if people know me, then that's where worth will be found. But Jesus flips the entire paradigm in this teaching. You see, they were still living by the world's definition of greatness. The world's definition of greatness says, aim for the best spot. Go for the best seat. Now, in our Baptist churches, it's always in the back row. That's why the back row always feels first here. You ever notice that? I'm not picking on you back row Baptists today, but that's, that's the prize position. Nobody wants to sit on the front row except for my wife because she has a little bit of ADHD. I'm going to tell on her for a moment. She watches people. That's why she always sits in the front. It's not because she's so interested in my sermons. She hears those all the time. But it's because she can't stand to be distracted by everybody else, so she sits on the front. But the rest of you, the good Baptists, you sit in the back row. Roland, you're back there, buddy. Thank you for that. And so that's what these guys were doing. They're saying, Jesus... We want you to do something for us. And then he takes the bait. Okay, what do you want me to do for you? We want to sit at your right hand and your left hand when you come into your kingdom. When you take your crown. See, they, they had in their minds, we're getting ready to go to Jerusalem. We're getting ready to go to the capital city. And Jesus is going to portray, display on full display who he is. And he's going to set up his kingdom. He's going to kick the butt of the Romans. And then we're going to all have these thrones that he promised us. And we might as well get the best seats in the house. This is the world's definition of greatness. Get all you can while you can, as much as you can, for as long as you can. This is the world's definition of greatness. And I want you to see something. Jesus continues to question them. Much of Jesus' teaching was wrapped up in questions. He loved to answer a question with a question. That's what he's doing here. Much of Jesus' teachings was wrapped up in questions, and he gives them a particular question here when he says, all right, guys, you don't really know what you're asking. You have no clue what you've asked for in asking for the best seats in the house because you don't know where I'm getting ready to go. You haven't quite picked up on the fact, even though I've taught you multiple times, I've been telling you exactly what's going to happen when we go to Jerusalem, but you haven't got it. You don't know what you're asking. And he asked them this. So are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? He gives two pictures. The picture of the cup and the picture of the baptism. Now let's not misunderstand what these pictures are references to. In the Old Testament, the cup was very often used as a symbol of of God's wrath. It speaks of the cup of the wrath of God being poured out on the nations because of their sin. And so this cup, it represents the wrath of God that Jesus was going to wrestle with. Just weeks from this moment, Jesus was going to fall down in the Garden of Gethsemane, agonizing in prayer over this very cup that he spoke to his disciples about, the cup of God's wrath. Remember he prayed, Lord, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. It was the cup of God's wrath 
that he must drink in order to rescue us from sin and death. But not just the cup. He speaks here. He says, are you able to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And he wasn't talking about the Mark chapter 1 baptism, go into the water, get dunked, and come up out of the water, and then everybody celebrates and rejoices. No, this was a baptism of suffering. He was saying, boys, listen up. I'm getting ready to be immersed in suffering. I'm getting ready to be drowned in suffering. Are you able to walk with me in that moment? And the strangest thing in the world is when they look at him and they said, what are the words? We are able. Folks, those are some of the most dangerous words that exist in our world today, and yet they are the motto They are the motto of the culture in which we are existing. We're able. We can do it. We even love to take verses like Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, and we like to cut off the end of it. I can do all things. That's what they were saying here. We're able. We can handle it. We've walked with you for nearly three years, Jesus. We've seen all that you've done. We've been a part of it. We were the guys who, who found the little boy with the lunch. We're the ones who went out, and we, we were able to cast out demons. We were able to do healing miracles. We've heard all your teachings. We're ready. We're able. We can do this. They had no clue what they were talking about. Adam Clark has this little dialogue that I wanted to share with you. He's talking about this passage, and he said, So they say unto him, We are able. Strange blindness. You can? No. One drop of this cup would sink you into utter ruin, unless upheld by the power of God. However, the man whom God has appointed to the work, he will preserve in it. We're able, Jesus. We can go where you're going. We can partake in whatever you're getting ready to partake in, Jesus. We're up for the task. And Jesus said, you have no idea what you're saying. But then he goes on. And he said, but I want you to know this. The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. Look forward into the life of James and John and we know from history that James was the very first of those 12 disciples who was killed because of his faith in Christ. In the very city of Jerusalem, he was killed because of his faith and his proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was the very first of the 12 to be martyred. His brother John was the only one that did not die a martyr's death, but he very much lived a martyr's life, full of suffering and anguish and ended his final days on the Isle of Patmos in exile. They tried to kill him several times and were unsuccessful, so they just exiled him to get rid of him. And on that island, he was given the vision of the book of Revelation that concludes our New Testament. And Jesus is saying, boys, you are going to experience suffering. As he had already taught them, in this life, you're going to have trials. You're going to have tribulations. Life is going to be difficult. Believers, you need to hear that today. Your Jesus is not offering to you the key, the highway to health, wealth, and prosperity. He's saying, no, what I've got for you, what I've got for you is a cup of suffering. What I've got for you is a baptism of pain. What I'm offering to you, to those who follow me, is not first and foremost a crown. The only way to get to the crown is through the cross. And I know that you want to take up your thrones 
and set them next to mine. But what I'm saying to you is take up your cross and follow me. And the way of the cross only leads to one place, folks. It leads to death. Yes, a dying to myself. A dying to my wants and my desires. A dying to wanting the best place in the house, the greatest seat for myself. Jesus flips the entire thing and says, you want to follow me? This is what it's going to look like. If we stop right there, we go, this is way too much. We are not able. And folks, that's where Jesus has to take us first. He's first got to take us to that place where we go, but I'm not able to walk that road. I'm not able to go the way of the cross. And Jesus says, no, not in your own power, you're not. Not in your own power, you're not. You're not able. That's the first place the gospel takes us, is to understanding our inability so then, then we might gr- more greatly appreciate his ability. Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul writes these words. He says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now that if there is, is an assumption. He's saying, have you received any encouragement from being in Christ. I hope that's true for you. Have you received any comfort from His love? Have you participated in the Holy Spirit, seeing the effects, the fruit of the Spirit, evidence in your life? If that is true and you've experienced the changing power of Christ in your life, then there's something else that He wants us to do. And we'll come back to that passage here in just a moment. So He talks to them about the baptism and about the cup, about the way of suffering that He's getting ready to walk in a way that they will walk after him. But then in verses 41 through 44, we see this serious reversal that takes place. He said, all right, boys, you all want the best seats in the house, huh? Let me show you what that's going to look like. This serious reversal in verses 41 through 44, it begins when the rest of the disciples overhear the conversation. The rest of the disciples hear what's going on, the request that's been made, and they begin to be indignant And James and John, we'll come back to that in a minute. They were a little upset. And Jesus called to them and said, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Let's go back to verse 41. It says the others were a little upset. They were indignant. Why were they so upset? Here's what I think. This is, the Bible doesn't say this, but I'm kind of reading between the lines here based on what we've seen in chapters 8, 9, and 10 with these guys. I think they were ticked because they were being trumped by James and John. They were upset because they hadn't thought to ask the question first themselves. They saw, the, they saw that James and John had taken an opportunity that they had now missed out on because, you know, that was like first dibs, right? Well, they asked first. It's kind of like calling shotgun, I guess, at the throne of God. Well, these guys have already called shotgun, and now we're going to get the lesser seats. And so they were indignant. They were upset not because of the injustice of the question, but because they hadn't been the first ones to ask it. 
And so Jesus does what he always does when hubbub begins to happen in, in, in among his disciples. He calls them in and says, all right, guys, come on in here. Let me, let me do a little bit of teaching here now with you to remind you of what my kingdom is all about. You need to understand clearly what my kingdom is all about because there's a kingdom principle that is completely different from what you guys are doing. As we talked with the kids a little while ago, they've been arguing along the road about who was the greatest. And that same argument is, is standing behind what's happening now. And Jesus is saying, let me show you what it's going to look like to be great. I know that when you look at the Gentiles, you look at, the, at those who don't know God and you see greatness there, it looks like the guy who's sitting on the throne who's giving the orders. That's greatness. It looks like the guy who has all the money and can make all the decisions. That's greatness. It looks like the guy who has his name on the billboards and everyone knows him. That's greatness. It's celebrity. Greatness is found in all these things according to the world's definition. But he said, here's what greatness looks like in my kingdom. Greatness is found in servanthood. Like seriously, Jesus? I mean, we're wanting the best seats in the house. And you're wanting us to serve? We want to give the orders, not take the orders. Jesus said, let me teach you about this way. Look what he says there in verses 43 and 44. He's talked about the Gentiles, their definition of greatness, exercising authority, making themselves known, putting others down in order to lift themselves up. Verse 43, but it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. There's two words there, servant and slave. In the Greek, the, the word servant there is the Greek word diakonos, from which we get our English word deacon. And this particular word refers to the act of service. That's the sense of, of diakonos. It's all about the act of service. It's, it's service in action. That's what it means to be a deacon, uh, to follow in this pattern of the diakonos. It's, it's service in action. But then he goes a step farther. In the next verse he says, And the one who wants to be first among you must be slave. Of all, that's not diakonos. That's the Greek word doulos. The Greek word doulos speaks not of the act of service. The Greek word doulos speaks of the servant in relation to his master. And it's a lowly place. Jesus was going to show them just how lowly it was before it was all finished. Martin Luther King Jr. said this. He said, not everybody can be famous, but everybody can be great. Because greatness is determined by service. You see, he understood that kingdom principle, and even though he is a name that all of us know, he understood this kingdom principle, that greatness is accomplished through humble service. I want you to notice something there. He says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Who would be first among you must be slave of all. He didn't say might. He didn't say this was an option in the Christian life. He's saying this is the way. When Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, 
this is an essential portion of that way. No one comes to the Father except through this road of servitude. It's a hard word. It's a word that we, we don't like. We'd like to skip this part. But it's necessary. And we are called to serve others, even, he says here, to the point of slavery. We hate that word. What do you mean? I've got to be a slave. And maybe even we can find it palatable if he had said he must be a slave to God because we know that God is a good master. He's a loving master. So to be a slave to him, that seems a little more palatable to us. But notice what he says here. He didn't say he must be the first among you must be the slave to God. He says the first among you must be the slave of, what does he say? Of all. The first among you must be the slave of, all slave of my enemies slave of those who look down upon me serve those who despise me unless we get too far let's think more about Jesus Philippians chapter 2 says do nothing out of rivalry or conceit but in humility count others more significant than yourselves Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. We'll come to the rest of that passage before we finish. Final thing we see here. In verse 45, you see the Savior's ransom. The Savior's ransom, he says, For even the Son of Man, Jesus' favorite designation of himself, though he had every right to refer to himself as the Son of God, Some have said Jesus never referred to himself as the Son of God, which means he didn't believe he was the Son of God. I can show you multiple places where it was very clear Jesus believed himself to be the Son of God, knew he was the Son of God, and acted as the Son of God. But his favorite designation of himself was not the Son of God, though he deserved that title. His favorite designation of himself was Son of Man, which placed him immediately distant from that throne in heaven and in a place of humble servitude. To be called himself the Son of Man implied, I am here to serve people. How would he serve them? In John chapter 13, we see just days after this event, Jesus would serve them by stooping down to wash their feet. It's an amazing picture there in John 13. He stoops down to wash their feet, demonstrating for them what a a humble servant really does. If you think about a first century household, many first century households would have servants there in the home. And the lowest man on the totem pole in terms of servants in the home was always the foot washer. Nobody wanted to be the foot washer. That was considered the most disgusting, the most demeaning, the most degrading role that you could have. And so low man on the totem pole is the foot washer. He's the guy who washes feet before dinner. And it says of Jesus, on the night when he was going to be betrayed and sold out and the next day crucified, it says that Jesus took that role. He stooped down to wash their feet. John chapter 13. Because he took the towel, wrapped it around his waist, and then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. So much so that Peter protested, Lord, what are you doing? This isn't the spot you should have. I mean, make John wash the feet. He's the youngest. And Jesus said, I'm, I'm showing you what it means 
to be a part of my kingdom. So he stooped down and washed their feet. Just hours later, he fell down in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane in prayer. He fell down in prayer, agonizing over what he was about to do. Don't, don't think that Jesus just went robotically to the cross. That's not at all the picture. In the Garden of Gethsemane, see, we see the agony. We see the humanity of Jesus agonizing over what is getting ready to happen the following day. And he prays to the Father, Lord, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. If there's any other way to save lost humanity, if there's any other way to redeem lost sinners, Lord, let's do that. But then he prayed, but not my will, but yours be done. And he continued to serve them even as he agonized in prayer in the garden. And thirdly, that following day after washing their feet, after agonizing in prayer over what he was about to do for them, we understand very clearly that he did exactly what he said here in Mark 10.45 when he laid down his life. Greater love has no man than this that he laid down his life for his friends. And yet the Son of God who chose the designation Son of Man laid his life down for those who were not his friends. Rather, the Bible says we were enemies of God in our sin. All of us had sinned and come short of the glory of God, which does, which does not mean that we were basically good folks who had just done a few things out of the ordinary, that Jesus needed to come along with this little holy cloth and clean us up a little bit. No, to be a sinner means that I was an enemy of God, that I was living in open rebellion against a holy God, that I was just as like one who would shake his fist in the face of God and refuse the love and the grace of God. And in that moment, when I was that man who was shaking his fist in the face of God, that is when Jesus died for us. Not when we were his friends, but when we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 3.16 says this, By this we know love. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And so what is the result. We also ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. You say, well, hold on a minute. There's a bunch of the brothers I don't really like too well. In fact, I'd rather not even call them brothers. There's some folks that really get on my nerves, and you want me to serve them? Folks, don't you think that James and John probably were getting on Jesus' nerves just a little bit? It's obvious they were getting on everybody else's nerves in that moment. So why serve? I think C.J. Mahaney said it so well, and I wanted to share this with you. He said, ultimately, our Christian service exists for this reason, only to draw attention to this source, to our crucified and risen Lord who gave himself as the ransom for all. So when we serve, we're not pointing folks to ourselves saying, hey, look what a good servant I am. That's, again, the world's definition of greatness. Draw attention to myself. No, when we serve others, we are simply painting for them a picture of the crucified and risen Christ who gave his life so that they could have life. And they look at our service and they see not us any longer, but they see the servant Savior who died in our place. They see the love of Christ who extends even to His enemies. They see the grace of God which is displayed to those who don't deserve it in any way, shape, or form. And so as we serve others, as we serve others, we get to display Christ to them. 
There's a lot more I'd like to say. I'm going to save some of it for next week. I'm going to leave us with Philippians chapter 2, the rest of these, these verses. So he says, have this mind among yourselves. Think this way. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Think this way, it's which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the very form of God, though he deserved the title Son of God, he did not account his equality with God a thing to be grasped, to be held onto. But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Folks, this is the way of Jesus. If anyone would come after me, Jesus said he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is the way of the cross. It is no easy way. It is very clear, and it's fairly simple, but it is by no means the easy way. It's the way of loving your enemy enough to serve them humbly, even to the point of being their slave. It's the way of humbling yourself, rather than standing up for your rights, as we're so encouraged to do, rather than standing up for your rights and exalting your rights, it's setting aside your rights. Rather than going after my own interests, it's the way of pursuing the interests of others that I might show them the love of their Savior. It's no easy way. But it is by far the best way. Because the way of the cross eventually leads to the crown. But if you would have the crown of righteousness, you must go by the way of suffering. Father God, I pray that you'd speak to us. There is nothing easy. Nothing easy in this passage of Scripture. We probably won't leave here today with, with this wonderfully euphoric and and joyous feeling. But Lord, I pray in this moment, above everything else we've talked about, help us to fix our eyes on the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross and scorned its shame and is even now in this very moment help us to see him in this very moment he is exalted at the right hand of God and he is interceding for us he is praying for us not that we might stand for our rights but that we might set aside our rights not that we might exalt our own name but that we might exalt his not that we might be served but that we might serve others and thus demonstrate His love and His grace and His goodness. Father, lead us to the cross. To take up the cross and follow You. What seems like foolishness to the world is the power of God on display. Lord, flip the paradigm in our lives that we might follow You even unto death.
pray this in Jesus' name.